Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. Really excited about today's talk and today's episode. Today, we're going to be chatting about functional gastrointestinal disorders and some of the research that's been coming out with regards to vagus nerve stimulation and how it can have a specific role in the therapy of these particular conditions. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about these functional gastrointestinal disorders, FGID for short, just kind of briefly touch on the diagnosis of these, what's causing them, and talk then about the research showing therapeutic efficacy of vagus nerve stimulation. Okay. I am again joined by JP Erico. Thanks for joining JP. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Wonderful. So today's going to be a bit of a shorter episode, but I do want it to be very focused on the therapies and the conditions that vagus nerve stimulation has been shown to be effective in, in these gastrointestinal conditions. Why don't we dig into what are these particular functional gastrointestinal disorders that we're going to talk about today? Sure. And just to be clear about what the definition is that we're going to be using today, it does include gastroparesis, which is sometimes included and sometimes not included in the functional disorders of the gut. But what we're talking about is dyspepsia, bloating, cramping, pain associated with eating can extend to nausea, vomiting, and has been associated especially in the case of gastroparesis, which is really gastric paralysis, with the slow emptying time uh, from food taken in uh, as it passes through the stomach. So basically, longer transit time of material through the stomach. Yeah, and this is an important piece of the puzzle when it comes to optimal gut function, because there is an optimal time that our food should take to be processed internally through our digestive tract and for the nutrients to be extracted, and then for the remains to be excreted. And it varies between different people, but there is kind of an optimal amount of time. And food shouldn't really be laying in the stomach for more than a couple of hours maximum. Gastric emptying is an important piece of that puzzle. It's where the hydrochloric acid is produced and the chemical breakdown of the food is going to occur. And if that process is not working well due to either gastric motility issues or some sort of signaling mechanism that isn't working well, then it's going to slow and delay the entire function of the entire digestive sequence. To talk more or to listen more about the digestive sequence, go back to the last episode we did, because we really dug into the entire sequence of the digestive system, the digestive tract, and vagus nerve innervation to all of those areas. But when it comes to these particular conditions, we're talking mostly about motility and optimal functioning and why that optimal functioning may be eliminated and in some cases paralyzed when it comes to something like gastroparesis. Yeah, and we're also talking about the sensory inputs into the brain and how we perceive the process that's going on. It's, as we've described, it's a very dynamic and involved process with many different systems actually intertwined with the digestive tract. And there's lots and lots of information that's coming up into the brainstem from those various different areas where things are happening. And whether or not you become aware of the activity that's going on at a conscious level is related to whether or not that activity is causing you discomfort. And sometimes there's no real reason why the discomfort should be perceived 
other than what's happening in the central nervous system. So there is this tremendous connection between what's happening in the viscera and what's happening in the central nervous system with respect to how you perceive the comfort level or discomfort or whether it's subsensory. Yeah, to add to that just ever so slightly, quick reminder, about 80% of the information on the vagus nerve is afferent, meaning that it's coming up from the organs, from the stomach, the small intestine, the pancreas, the large intestine, liver, up to the brainstem, and then to be processed and determined as to what the outcome or the next steps will be in the central nervous system. And so that obvious massive amount of information that needs to make its way up is coming through the vagus nerve. And you can imagine if the vagus nerve is not working well, if vagal tone is down, or if there's some sort of reason for that nerve to not be functioning as well as it can be, it can have major effects, not only centrally within the central nervous system, but on the effects of those particular organs being able to function really, really well. So just an important precursor to our conversation today. Yeah. And vagal tone or parasympathetic tone is something that's measurable along with sympathetic tone. And what we find is in patients who have gastroparesis and functional disorders of the gut, that they have tend to have lower vagal tone. Heart rate variability is altered in the direction of low frequency, which is where the sympathetic tone is. And you see lower activity in the higher frequencies, which is where the vagal tone is. It's not something that just has a secondary effect. I mean, it can be measured at the primary level. Yes, absolutely. And so anything that we can measure, we can manage and we can support and we can potentially change. And that's really what we're trying to get to here is that these diagnoses are not life sentences. And often there are therapies that can provide a lot of comfort and positive therapeutic benefit for those that are suffering. All right. So why don't we dig into kind of the beginning here? Let's start with dyspepsia. Dyspepsia is kind of a good entry point to this area. Sure. So dyspepsia is one of those symptoms that is along the lines of what we were discussing just now, more of a sensory experience. It isn't necessarily clearly definable by looking at one person versus another. One person has the symptoms, one doesn't. And looking at the gut and saying, well, this person has something different going on. It's really more of a sensory experience. And there have been several studies looking at using modulation of the nervous system in order to treat it. And we'll get into what those papers are. But that's what we're talking about. Dyspepsia is, could range from gastric reflux all the way through to cramping and bloating and other symptoms that don't necessarily directly relate to the transit time of food, but in general has been associated with it because people who have lower transit times on average will experience more of those symptoms. Yeah, no question about it. So When it comes to functional dyspepsia, what we're essentially pointing to is discomfort caused by some sort of dysfunctional aspect of the stomach, particularly, and the initial parts of the small intestine or duodenum. And so essentially what's happening is there's some sort of signaling mechanism that is broken down that is not allowing for gastric motility, gastric functioning to be optimized. And so food remains in the stomach for a little bit too long, or it creates a bit more of a bloat and discomfort that can occur in many of these conditions. It's it's varied with regards to what those symptoms can be. But if you're dealing with some sort of gastrointestinal bloat or some sort of pain that's present in the upper abdominal gastric region, this is often one of those areas that we can look towards. 
Absolutely. And, and it blends in with gastroparesis, which yes. is there are stronger associations with gastroparesis with very clearly definable disease states, like, for example, diabetes, Parkinson's, Parkinsonism, and other, frankly, neurologic disorders that lead to a slowing of and even stopping of gastric motility. And so there's a spectrum of experiences, much the same way rheumatoid arthritis can be associated with very clear degeneration of the joint and the, the articular surfaces, et cetera. Whereas fibromyalgia and other painful symptoms, painful conditions don't necessarily have that level of damage to the joint. In fact, sometimes there's no damage that's clearly definable radiologically to the joint, but yet the pain levels are experienced the same way. So much the same way with gastroparesis, there is a definable pathology. Uh, sometimes the dyspepsia is not definable by a specific pathology that's peripheral. It's the experience that you're having or the perception that you're having that's leading to the symptoms. So let's talk a little bit about what should be happening. When food makes its way down after being chewed in the mouth, down through the esophagus, it then enters the stomach, passing through the upper or lower esophageal sphincter and getting into the stomach. And that's where it's essentially turned through an acid bath and broken down through hydrochloric acid production. Uh, we have other pepsin, excuse me, and, and a few other chemicals that are produced, particularly within the stomach. And that's where food is essentially broken down biochemically. Now, this is where we should create this chyme mixture, which then enters the small intestine. And that's where we can then start to absorb nutrients into the bloodstream via the intestinal walls. When that process is broken down, we're going to have a few different things occurring. What we initially feel when that food makes its way down into the stomach is a stretch reflex. And this is one of those areas that stretch reflex is signaling from the enteric nervous system of the stomach via the vagus nerve up to the brainstem. And so this stretch reflex is an important factor here. Can we dig into that a little bit? Yeah, stretch receptors are present on multiple organs. There's, they're in the lungs, which is one of the reasons why deep breathing exercises activates the vagus nerve in the same way that a greater curvature of the stomach when you have, as you said, an expansion of the stomach or significant movement of the stomach, which frankly, the, the stomach moves all the time, whether there's food there or not, there's a constant churning that's going on. That's one of the sources of bowel sounds along with gas moving through the intestines. But that movement will cause the stretch receptors to expand and activate and they send information, as you said, afferent information going up through the vagus nerve into the brainstem for processing. Now, in the brainstem, there is the sort of what I refer to as the muffler. It's a filter that exists, and its goal is to basically stop any signals that are benign from rising to the level of being perceived. And the purpose of that is that you want to ignore all the signals that are coming into the brainstem that would otherwise distract you and aren't meaningful. They're inhibited or blunted or, or muted by a cascade of neurotransmitters, inhibitory neurotransmitters that basically stop the activation of higher level processing. When there's a problem, that information rises beyond that filter and then rises to the level of being consciously perceived. And as you can imagine, 
the purpose of consciously perceiving that is to make you aware of and make you take actions or behave in a way that will alter the reason why you're experiencing it. And so unfortunately, that means it should be uncomfortable or something that would cause you to make a change in your behavior. The problem is that sometimes that filter can be broken down. And as a result, signals that should otherwise not pass on up to the higher levels of your brain do. And so sometimes the problems are simply associated with, and I shouldn't say simply because it's quite complicated, but the problem can be identified as having an inability to mount the appropriate level of inhibition, that descending inhibition, which is those inhibitory neurotransmitters are not being expressed at high enough levels to relieve you of experiencing symptoms that you otherwise shouldn't. A perfect way, or I shouldn't say a perfect way, but a a very common way to deplete your brain of temporarily, deplete your brain of the ability to filter out benign signals is through overuse of alcohol. If you have too much alcohol that you've taken in, hopefully it was for a good reason. If so, then what you end up with is stomach problems, pain, and other things that you would otherwise not have experienced that your body has recognized as no longer being something it needs to be consciously aware of. And and you wake up the next morning with aches and pains and nausea and other problems that you would not have otherwise experienced simply because you've depleted the descending inhibition or the inhibitory neurotransmitters that would otherwise have blocked that signal. And that can occur not simply from drinking, but it can occur from other things, a bacterial infection in your stomach, um, having eaten something that was uh, that just didn't sit well with you. Um, and unfortunately for some people, that experience can persist for an extended period of time. That's what I think of as functional disorders versus disorders that have a, a real root cause that's located in the peripheral organ. Things like nerve damage or problems that would stop the flow of food through the system. Yeah, absolutely. Like a blockage or whatnot, exactly. Sure. Okay. So this is clearly pointing to both the stretch receptor within the stomach itself needing to be functioning really well, that signal being sent up to the brainstem. And we have then the inhibition or that filtering of information that should or should not rise to the level of consciousness. And so we have a central area that we have to look at as well that could lead to these symptoms and to discomfort. From a root cause perspective, you already kind of mentioned these, but including things like bacterial infections or bacterial overgrowths within particular organs in the stomach, one of the more common ones being H. pylori, Helicobacter pylori. It could be things like parasitic or worm-based triggers that can create these challenges and foods that just simply disagree with you based on their ripeness as well. There's multiple reasons why this could occur from a root cause perspective. When they do occur and a diagnosis is then provided, things like epigastric pain syndrome, postprandial distress syndrome, these functional dyspepsias where you're still able to kind of do your thing, but you're fully aware that there is discomfort and pain that is occurring in the stomach area. Let's talk a little bit about, we know that there is this vagus innervation here. And we have this wonderful study that's been provided by uh, Zhu et al., which uh, talks about vagus nerve stimulation in particular with regards to functional dyspepsias. 
Yeah, the Zhu paper, which came out, I think about a year, year and a half ago, was a study in which they used uh, transcutaneous auricular vagus nerve stimulation, which is an electrical stimulation of the tragus nerve, which sits in the outer ear canal and can be stimulated with uh, an electrode. Um, when they stimulated the nerve uh, in the patients, they saw a reduction in symptoms. Now, this was a short-term study. I think it was only a couple of weeks. But what they found was a reduction in those symptoms of nausea and bloating and cramping and other symptoms associated with dyspepsia uh, and functional disorders of the gut. Even though it was a relatively small study, the, the symptom relief was statistically significant and very promising. Obviously, we need to see a larger study, but there have been a series of, of pilot studies like this that have all seemed to point in the same direction. So while they're not necessarily poolable data, and we can't necessarily draw a p-value out of combining them, it's directionally positive and gives us some comfort that multiple investigators have seen similar results. Yeah, so this was a two-week study, and they did transcutaneous auricular vagus nerve stimulation, stimulating the auricular branch of vagus nerve, which is innervating the tragus, the skin of the tragus in particular. And they did a sham in a separate group, and they were able to notice a statistically significant decrease in or reduction in symptomatic nature of nausea and epigastric pain, which is really phenomenal, even in a small group study like this. So it is obviously a sign to continue on and to go further, but this was a really wonderful uh, paper to create direction for those that might be dealing with this type of challenge. If we then step into a bit more severe disease state of uh, stomach function, let's go into that gastroparesis area. What tends to be happening when it comes to gastroparesis, or as you mentioned, gastroparalysis? And is it more of a stretch receptor type of issue, or is it more of a motility through, uh, through efferent function type of issue as well. Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit of both, probably more of the latter, as you said, though. There is a much more severe state when you have gastroparesis. Uh, it can actually lead in many cases to severe sufferers having to be fed through a feeding tube as opposed to being able to eat. They literally lose the ability to take in nutrients through the mouth orally. And so that can be quite disabling and destructive of your quality of life. What happens is these patients will typically vomit up their food. They'll be intolerant of that. They'll uh, reach a state of no longer having any hunger at all and not being able to take any more food because their satiety reflex has been hit uh, very, very early. These are very severe patients. And as I mentioned, it, it is about 40 to 50% of the patients who suffer with gastroparesis have it secondary to type 2 diabetes. And so it is, um, it's actually referred to as diabetic gastroparesis. The remaining uh, population has what's referred to as idiopathic uh, gastroparesis, which suggests that there's not a known cause for it. But in fact, there are a, a number of different buckets uh, into which we can place these people. In fact, in a study that was done uh, that I was uh, aware of and, and, and involved with peripherally um, that was conducted over in the UK in um, uh, back of, about half a decade ago uh, in uh, the Royal Free Hospital, which is part of the University College of London um, organization. They conducted a study in gastroparesis patients. It was not randomized, but it was an open label study using a, a cervical uh, non-invasive vagus nerve stimulator. And the results of that study were 
uh, very positive that led us to uh, to feel confident that that we were contributing positively to the, the knowledge base. What they showed was that these patients, or what we learned was that these patients typically had some event that occurred in their lives, whether it be um, a, a severe parasitic infection or bacterial dysbiosis, that it persisted for an extended period of time. In some cases, uh, they had a surgery. I think we're all familiar with the temporary paralysis of, of the digestive system that can occur post-surgery, so uh, referred to as an ileus, uh, post-operative ileus. Um, but in many cases, these patients had had a surgery and had really never recovered from the ileus, and as a result, were diagnosed with gastroparesis. So there's many different causations uh, that can lead into uh, gastroparesis, but what we found was that vagus nerve stimulation with a, a non-invasive approach could could relieve symptoms, and in, in some cases, it was dramatic. I mean, patients who had spent uh, years having to only survive on feeding tubes, as uh, jejunal feeding tubes, uh, were able to uh, now go out to out to meals, uh, to dinner with family and friends, and participate in ways that they had really had to give up for uh, for many years. So very positive results. It did not have that effect for everyone. Uh, I want to be clear. So there's still much work that needs to be done in order to clarify whether or not this therapy is actually the reason for the benefits. But just the time scale of when the relief was experienced by these people was pretty dramatic. Yeah, and the study that you pointed to by uh, Pollen and Owen Epstein being one of the lead authors on that paper as well, clearly pointed to about a 43% of participants were known then as responders. They actually had a positive response. So 43% of these people that were suffering from this debilitating condition that I've had the unfortunate task of working with other patients that have had this particular diagnosis. It is a struggle to live when you cannot eat food uh, regularly, when the food just does not move through your intestinal tract effectively. And if 43% of these people were responders within six weeks of beginning this simple transcutaneous cervical vagus nerve stimulation to the point where they were able to have relief and potentially even start to live a more normal life. It's quite promising that something like this could be beneficial for a good chunk of these people that are dealing with this particular challenge. Yeah, the results that we saw were consistent with results of the Entera system. So uh, just for those people who aren't aware, Medtronic, which uh, is a medical device company in the United States, makes a product called the Entera, which is not at this point approved, but it is available for commercial sale through what's called the humanitarian device exemption. It's a testament to how devastating this condition is, but patients will have uh, an implantable device surgically inserted into their bodies with leads that go to the greater curvature of the stomach. They're connected to the stomach directly. And the goal was to increase the rate of food transiting through the gut, so increasing gastric motility. But the interesting thing that they found was that the symptom relief in some cases, in many cases actually, was far quicker than any change to the gastric motility. In fact, gastric motility, and it's been found in other studies too, I think we're also going to uh, have a chance to talk about the Gottfried study uh, led by Linda Nguyen out at Stanford University. These studies seem to indicate 
that while gastroparesis is defined by this uh, slowing of gastric motility, that the gastric motility may change or it may not in the patients. And it seems somewhat disconnected from the symptom relief that they're experiencing. But again, whether the symptom relief comes from the direct change in, in gastric motility or a central nervous system change in perception of what's happening, I think the patients won't care either way. Again, all of these studies need to be followed up. I certainly hope that Medtronic at some point passes beyond just a humanitarian device exemption and gets a full approval for the device and that we can have the good fortune to see the results of their study. Yeah, that would be wonderful. And we're going to dig into it a little bit more in a future episode. But just to point out, there are three particular ways that electrical stimulation to the vagus nerve can be applied. There are two that we talked about so far that are non-invasive. One is electrical stimulation to the auricular branch of the vagus nerve, which is the ear, particular areas of the ear that the auricular branch goes to. The transcutaneous cervical vagus nerve stimulation, which is actually to the neck region. Um, if you find your pulse that you're finding your carotid artery, vagus nerve is just adjacent to that. So it's an easier area to connect to and have an electrical stimulation go on to trigger the fibers of the vagus nerve that are located within the neck, which are quite a lot, just so you know. And then the third way is that same spot, but invasively, we can have an implanted device be put directly onto the vagus nerve and electrically stimulated remotely, or just have like a, a battery pack basically that uh, stimulates on, on an ongoing basis. And so there are multiple ways, and we'll, we're going to dig deeper into the science of vagus nerve stim and the different devices and the differences between these. However, just as a quick prelude to that, all three of these are basically approximately the same in terms of what efficacy is with regards to turning on the vagus nerve. Is that correct? Yeah, provided the signals are the same, there are actually... A I would call it a fourth class, but it's part of the implantable class you were just talking about. So you can access uh, the branches of the vagus nerve, as you said, in the ear or the neck. Cervical branches are sort of the main trunk as it's going up into the brainstem. But you can also access vagal fibers in the subdiaphragmatic region. So basically, like the enteric system, it's actually the device, the signal generator is implanted, and the leads are all subdiaphragmatic because they're trying to get to the greater curvature of the stomach. And there's also a product that was approved by the FDA for the treatment of obesity um, called the V block which was also, I'm not sure it's still on the market, but that product is also a subdiaphragmatic stimulator and it has a different signal. So as a result, it has a different effect on the vagus nerve. It's more of a blocking signal versus an activating signal. Although I think ultimately there's a, a very interesting parallel in terms of the effect that it has on the rest of the, of the body. There are some other products that I don't think have ever made it to the market one that was called the tantalus system that was also much like the enteric system. It was supposed to be a gastric pacing device. It depends on what the signal is that's being applied as to how it affects the vagus nerve. But as you said, the, the trunk of the vagus nerve is sitting in the neck. It is, sits inside the carotid sheath next to the carotid artery. And there are literally more than 100,000 fibers on either side of your neck. So there's plenty of, of nerve tissue to activate. Absolutely. Why don't we dig into the Gottfried study with regards to gastroparesis um, and that transcutaneous vagal nerve stimulator? 
Sure. Uh, Linda Nguyen is a wonderful professor in the medical school out at Stanford University, and she was interested in studying gastroparesis and the effects of vagus nerve stimulation on gastroparesis. She selected to use a non-invasive approach, and the study was, again, a short study, only a few weeks, but what they did was they they ensured that their, the patient population would be compliant and would be uh, would report information well. So they had a two-week run-in period. For all studies, I, I highly encourage that. It, it gets patients to commit to something even before they receive therapy. In this case, study was looking at gastric transit time and symptomatology. And again, in this study, I thought it was very interesting. I, it's, it's worth bringing up again that that what they found was there was a change in gastric motility, a change that was uh, on the verge of being statistically significant. I think it was P was uh, 0.053, but in a small study, you can imagine it's difficult to get to that statistical significance, but they were on the cusp of showing that the gastric transit time had decreased uh, significantly. And But that what they found was that the change in gastric transit time was independent of the symptom relief. And again, they found about 40 to 50% of the patients experienced positive results and they were encouraged. Now, in the case that of that study, that was idiopathic yes. um, gastroparesis, which again, I actually found quite promising because much of the work that had been done prior to that study seemed to indicate that the benefits in diabetic gastroparesis were typically better than in the idiopathic patients. So to see comparable results in a patient population that was only idiopathic was quite uh, positive. I would be very happy if, if she were to continue that work and uh, take it forward in a diabetic gastroparesis patient population. But my understanding from talking to her was that her patient population was more idiopathic and that endocrinologists and other, patient, uh, other people were more the primary caregivers around the gastroparesis experienced by diabetic patients. For me, it brings up this question of, yes, we're increasing gastric motility time Ideally, with a larger study, we'll be able to get to a statistical significantly to a point of statistical significance. Just as a quick little side note, the transit time or gastric emptying time went from 155 minutes to 129 minutes. Um, so a clear reduction, but obviously just off of that statistical significance in that particular study. But the fact that the results were independent of the symptomatic nature as well. And what that means to me is that potentially just even with the vagus nerve stimulation, yes, we're helping to potentially improve gastric emptying, but we're particularly potentially affecting the inflammatory nature of these conditions as well. And maybe that's why it's more beneficial in, or seems to be more beneficial in diabetic gastroparesis, because we know that there is an inflammatory effect in type 2 diabetes, and we know that the potentially the inflammatory cellular nature of macrophages and macrophage activity within the uh, intestinal walls may be reduced when vagus nerve is stimulated, thus allowing for a reduction in those symptoms and the symptomatic nature of these conditions. Yeah, there's a, quite a lot to unpack in what you said there, and I think it's worth diving into here for a minute. In diabetes, there's no question that there's dysfunction with the immune system and the immune cells that line the gut, and we've talked about that on a, on a prior episode. But it's also true that there's damage 
that's done to the vagus nerve as a result of high levels of sugar that are in circulation over an extended period of time. I mean, we know we're all familiar with some of the more dire consequences of type 2 diabetes that includes diabetic neuropathy in the peripheral limbs, especially in your feet, and your that can lead to uh, problems with the vascular system and others, uh, and also in the eyes. You know, diabetic blindness is something that that occurs, but there's damage to other nerves, and, and the vagus nerve is not immune to it. So there's uh, damage to the vagus nerve that may actually be part of the underlying etiology of gastroparesis and diabetes patients. So yes, uh, being able to prevent that inflammation and reverse that uh, sugar overload can be a positive influence. So that's one piece of what you were saying. The other piece is that um, the, the disconnect between the gastric transit time and, and the symptoms, it suggests that there's a very bright line of uh, transit time that sits in the gastroparesis definition versus not. And it's not quite so clear. Um, in fact, there's a very broad um, spectrum of transit times that even within an individual uh, that can experience. So for example, um, uh, things like um, allergies to food, you know, gluten allergies or uh, dairy allergies or other things can quite substantially alter transit time even within the same individual. And therefore, gastric transit time is, is important and it certainly can be part of the symptoms that patients experience. But I think that that's only one of a number of different factors that can play into what we call gastroparesis, but in fact is, is gastroparesis plus, if you will. Yeah. Um, so, so vagus nerve stimulation may or may not actually be changing gastric emptying, it may simply change our experience of what that gastric transit uh, is doing to us from a perception standpoint. And the, our perception can change the gastric transit time in the other direction. Um, remember, there's an afferent and an efferent arm to the vagus nerve, and there's sympathetic nerves, and there's the spinal cord, and there's all, all sorts of other effects or, or causes that can affect the transit time. So Simply looking at transit time and expecting transit time to correlate with symptom relief was probably, in retrospect, we can say it was probably a little naive. Fortunately, patients gained benefit even independent of changes in gastric uh, empty. Perfect. Yeah, it is a lot to unpack. There's hopefully some good research that's being done now to help identify the varying physiological kind of methods by which the, the vagus nerve stimulation is effective. But at the end of the day, if it is effective and it helps give people back their quality of life, uh, I personally am all for it. So, Especially since there's very few treatments available. Being in the United States, there's really only one commercially available drug for gastroparesis. There are others outside the United States, but the one in the United States, metoclopramide, has... Um, has a black box warning from the FDA. So it's the only other therapy out there uh, that is, and it's the only one that's, so um, it, it would be really beneficial for patients and for, for caregivers to find out whether or not vagus nerve stimulation really is everything that the early studies seem to suggest. And if so, um, how do we get it to the market as quickly as possible? Um, outside the United States, there are a few others. I think in Canada, where you are, uh, Ondansetron is available. Sounds familiar, yeah. 
Um, and, and I know there's a couple of others, Don Peridone, yes, um, but uh, yes. I know that Don Peridone is not available in the United States. So um, at least here in the United States, we're, we're down to one. So it would be great if we could get a, get a third option out there. And especially an option that has significantly less of a potential negative uh, intended consequences from without getting too deep into it uh, from electrical stimulation, which has very few um, unintended consequences occurring from it as well. So this would be a great support for a lot of people that are really suffering with this really difficult and terrible condition. So if you're out there and, and you are interested in learning more about it, or you can do the research for this, I think this would be a really important place to continue to um, dig in and, and help people that are really suffering. Agreed. I think we've been able to cover a good chunk of some of this research on vagus nerve stimulation um, with regards to these functional gastrointestinal disorders, including gastroparesis, functional dyspepsia. We mentioned ileus as well, uh, post-operative ileus. Uh, any parting words for this uh, kind of shorter episode of our podcast today? No, I, I want to just uh, maybe relay a story of the study that was done over in the UK, which I found uh, and maybe a second story from here in the United States as well. Um, one of the patients that was in that study was a, a young girl. I mean, I call her a young girl. She was she was 26, so that doesn't make her a young girl anymore. Um, but um, but she had been a college student and had a, an experience in her life that led her to have um, gastroparesis. She had had a spine surgery that had left her with an ileus um, that never resolved. Um, she had to drop out of school. Um, she lost uh, quite a bit of weight. Her father ended up quitting his job and scouring the world, trying to find anything that could help his daughter recover from what turned out to be really a devastating change in her ability to function. She was fortunate enough to go to uh, the Royal Free Hospital and to get uh, to Dr. Owen Epstein, who enrolled her in this uh, case series, if you will. And um, it was just very gratifying to hear how within a matter of weeks, she was able to start to eat solid food and she was able to start gaining weight. And she, uh, within a couple of months, she was back at school and she was, uh, she was going out to dinner with her father. You know, it gave him his life back too, because he had dedicated his life to her uh, and finding a way to help her. And, and then he could get back to a more normal existence. Unfortunately, there was another story about a, a similar condition called cyclic vomiting syndrome, which is in some ways related to uh, what we've been talking about. It's an intolerance of anything going on in the stomach. Cyclic vomiting syndrome can, can really be devastating and, and affects people where they'll end up vomiting you know, dozens of times a day, every day. Um, it's completely debilitating. There was a patient out in, um, out in Salt Lake City who was treated by a, a physician who had actually lost his own daughter to cyclic vomiting syndrome a number of years earlier. And this patient was treated for comorbid headaches. Um, and the patient uh, had a remarkable recovery of, you know, from the cyclic vomiting. Um, and so it was a, a double benefit. The headaches resolved as well as, as the cyclic vomiting. Now, again, these are anecdotes. They're not evidence. They're stories. But those stories like that lead people to want to do research and want to study and want to see whether or not there's actually been a glimpse of truth that has been discovered as a result of observation. And so 
I encourage the same way you did. I encourage anybody out there who's, who's listening to this, who has an interest um, to, to take up the mantle and to expand the knowledge base and expand, uh, you know, do good science and expand the data that we can rely on and ultimately, hopefully submit and have it be something that's a, a treatment, whether it's using an auricular stimulator, an implanted stimulator that's above the diaphragm or below the diaphragm or a cervical stimulator of some sort, we're just excited to see the potential of, of helping uh, our fellow man. Yeah, no question about it. And just as a parent, those stories, both of them, um, particularly the first, but both really do resonate with me. And, and as a parent, you know you would do anything to ensure that your kids are taken care of and are, are able to function at a high level. And so I think it, it's just a great place to end our conversation today. So thanks for sharing those anecdotes and uh, thanks for going through the research with me today. It's been a wonderful episode. And uh, for those of you who are listening, thank you so much for getting to this end point of the episode. But uh, stay tuned for some really good content coming up soon with regards to vagus nerve stimulation, uh, understanding the differences and uh, particular other conditions that may have some really unintended but very cool positive consequences of being supported by vagus nerve stim. All right. Have a wonderful day. Please share this with anybody that needs this and we'll uh, see you on the next one. <laughs>